Maybe you wanted to, as you were a kid, you wanted to grow up and you wanted to go into a restricted part of the military. You wanted to be an army ranger. Or you wanted to be some other special branch of the military. And, and you went to apply for that and they asked you if you met certain physical criteria and you were disqualified because you were too tall. Or you had certain medical conditions that disqualified you from that certain branch of service. I mean, if you're blind, we really don't want you flying planes in the Air Force. Everything in in our society even today is trying to move away from having to submit to a rule or a regulation. Just this week, there was an Olympian who was disqualified for testing positive for a banned substance. And, and And the outcry was, well, we should change the rule. Big corporate execs trying to find loopholes to avoid paying taxes Or even something like a couple removed from a flight for refusing to wear masks properly on a plane. Even the month that we have that we just left, June, which our society celebrated as Pride Month, is nothing more but a celebration of refusing to submit to God's regulations and rules regarding marriage. My rights and what is right to me has superseded our obligation to submit to rules, regulations, and structures in place in our day. Sadly, this shift in thinking threatens the church. It was something that threatened the early church too. And Peter, aware of this trend in his day, wrote 1 Peter to a group of churches. And he, he writes 1 Peter to these churches in order to remind them what does it mean to be a true Christian. Recall that in chapter 1 we saw this incredible hope and inheritance that those who trust in Christ alone for salvation have. They are set apart. They are kept by God for an imperishable inheritance with God for eternity. We saw in chapter 1 that God expects His children to conduct themselves in holiness, to delight in God and in His Word. Last time we were together, we looked at the beginning of 1 Peter 2, and we saw this incredible structure that God is constructing with Christ alone as the cornerstone. God is building His church, a collection of living stones, and He's building them, He's he's making them into a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. They are, 1 Peter 2.9 says, they are God's own special people. The incredible reality of what God has done for us in Christ and what he has done through us as a church leads Peter to remind us that we ultimately do not belong to the world that we live in. The very beginning of the letter, he calls them pilgrims, exiles, sojourners. In verse 11 of chapter 2, Peter says, I beg you, I beseech you, I urge you as sojourners and pilgrims. 
This theme of pilgrims and sojourners and exiles is pervasive in 1 Peter. It is key for us to see ourselves as those who are not at home in this world. That's what First Peter, that's what Peter's trying to get across in First Peter. Church, we are not at home in this world. See yourself as that. Well, it's one thing to see ourselves as pilgrims or sojourners, but what does it mean to live like a pilgrim or exile in this world? It's one thing to say you need to see yourself as this. What does it mean to live in light of seeing yourself as that? Peter anticipates this question. And what we see in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 11, all the way through chapter 3 in verse 12, is Peter working out what it looks like for his original audience, and by extension to you and I, to live as a pilgrim or exile in this world. Being a Christian is not an abstract concept. It's not something that is an idea of the mind. It results, Christianity is, it results in a daily lifestyle that mimics Christ and his values. So in our text, Peter is very important. He's very careful to point out that our lifestyle doesn't do anything to take away our sins or make us right before God. So right at the get-go, the things that he's going to tell us about are not things that we need to add to our moral checklist. And by doing them, we will add righteousness or good works to ourselves. Peter makes that very clear at the end of chapter 2, that Christ Himself bore our sins. That He is the one who provides salvation. There is no other name given among heaven whereby we must be saved. It is Jesus Christ alone. So the big idea then that we see in our text this morning is this. As strangers in this world, we ought to follow Christ's example of submission as his servants. The big idea of of where we're going this morning in our text is this. As strangers in this world, we ought to follow Christ's example of submission as his servants. Peter lays out this idea for us. He uses everyday situations that would have been common to his audience, and he pairs that with how being a Christian transforms that given situation. So, as we look at our text this morning, we're going to be specifically focusing on 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 25. In August, we will come back and we'll revisit the first part of chapter 3, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. But This morning, we want to consider verses 11 through 25 of 1 Peter 2. And in this, in these first verses, verses 11 and 12, and verses 21 through 25, notice first with me this morning that we see dueling priorities. Dueling priorities. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12 reads, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. 
These passages, verses 11 and 12, and verses 21 through 25, along with chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, contain the general principles that Peter is instructing the churches to practice in their daily routines. These are the the overarching concepts that if you get caught up in the weeds, come back out, zoom out, and focus on these big concepts. He takes these principles and then applies them to specific situations for us and for the original audience that they would have faced particularly. So, in verses 11 and 12, there are two big commands that we see in the text. The first one is to abstain from fleshly lusts. The second one is the beginning of verse 12, to have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Those are the two big commands of the section. Whatever it looks like for the government, whatever it looks like with slaves and masters, whatever it looks like with husbands and wives, whatever it looks like for church as a whole, the two big commands are, you as Christians are to abstain from fleshly lusts and have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. The purpose of these two commands is that these churches would glorify God and cause others to glorify God as well. Recall what Jesus said in Matthew 5 when he said that you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. What are you supposed to do with that light? You're supposed to let that light shine before men that when they see your good works, they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. Peter's picking up on those words. Remember, Peter heard that sermon in person. The fight to follow these two commands is not easy. We find in verse 11 that we're supposed to abstain from fleshly lusts, and notice this, which war against the soul. Our fleshly lusts, the desires in us that are worldly, they war against our soul. They're not easily taken down. They rear their ugly head every morning when that alarm clock goes off. And they're on duty. And they're ready to start kicking and fighting and warring against you. And Peter warns the church as sojourners and pilgrims. The the idea of, of the word beg there has this idea of urgent pleading with them. Like, like this is this is not something that you're like, hey, um, if you could remember to put the toilet paper on correctly, that would be great. This is like a life and death matter. Peter is is urgently, passionately trying to plead with these believers as sojourners and pilgrims to do these two things. You drop down to chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, we see the example of Christ. And this is really where our pattern comes from for doing these things. Verse 21 reads, For to this you were called... Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we 
having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So our command to submit, and we're going to get to that in verses 13 through 20 here shortly. The command to submit is rooted in what Christ has done for us. Our calling as Christians is to follow Christ in suffering. What is the nature of Christ's suffering? Well, we see in verses 22 and 23 that Christ suffered righteously. He committed no sin or was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. In other words, he wasn't guilty. There was no reason for him to suffer in himself. There was no just cause for Christ to suffer for anything he had done. He suffered what he suffered for us. For you and I. Verse 24. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Those sins that he bore on the tree were not his own sins. Because he committed no sin. He bore our sins. Let that sink in. That that the God that we are here to worship this morning is the one who has taken our sins and he bore them in his body when he died on the cross for those sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, verse 24 says. And through his stripes, his wounds, his suffering, we are healed and forgiven. Christ suffered and died for us so that we might, verse 24 says, live for righteousness. Paul echoes these words in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a joyous thing to rejoice in this morning. That though our sins are many, they are gone because of what Christ has done. Verse 25 shows us how we are able to belong to the kingdom of God. There is reconciliation taking place in verse 25. Because notice that we were like sheep going astray. That we were doing whatever we wanted to do, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We who were once going astray have been returned. John 10 tells us, shows us a picture of Jesus being the good shepherd. And what does he do when one of them wanders off? He goes off and he rescues that one. He leaves the ninety and the nine and he goes and he rescues the one. David in Psalm 23 echoes this sentiment of God being our shepherd when he says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So we were like sheep going astray and it's not like we've been returned to the okay shepherd 
We didn't get, you know, what nobody else wanted. Friends, we got the best shepherd there is. Who cares for us. Who loves us. Who was willing to sacrifice himself for us. These verses have serious overtones from Isaiah 53. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53. We had VBS a few Saturdays ago, and some of these verses were our memory verses. The times that we, the the verses that we focused on as we uh, had kids and, and were discussing with them the truth from God's word. We looked at Isaiah 53. Consider Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, and and let the truth in these verses sink in as we read them. Here's what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Look at verse 5. But he, he was wounded. For our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Verse 6 sounds an awful lot like 1 Peter 2:25. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And notice this last sentence. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Not him and a bunch of other people. Him alone. Christ alone paid for our sins on the cross. And and Peter here brings that into this text as we think about what does it mean to be a true Christian. He brings in the example of Jesus because our submission to others around us in our society and even here in our church is rooted in Christ's submission. Paul talks about that in Philippians 2 when he says that he made himself of nothing, that he humbled himself. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So back to 1 Peter 2. Peter brings these verses in and and he leaves us with a question in verses 21 through 25. Friend, have you trusted in what Christ did for you? The the example that Christ set of, of bearing our sins, have you believed in that? Have you trusted in that for salvation? Have you acknowledged your sin, repented from it, and turned to Christ in faith for salvation? Jesus wants to give you a living hope. He wants to restore your relationship with God. So trust in Him. If you have not trusted in Him for salvation, today can be the day of salvation for you. Trust in Him for salvation. Talk with me after the service or someone around you about how you today can have salvation in Jesus Christ alone.
So as we look at verses 11 and 12 and 21 through 25, we, we see these dueling priorities, these opposing priorities. On the one hand, this world, those who are at home in this world, are going to engage in fleshly lusts. They're going to reject suffering. They're going to seek what pleases them. They're going to trust in what they can do or have done. priorities of this world, though, and and the emphases of this world are in stark contrast to the priorities and the focuses of those who have been bought by Christ, those in the church. Those in the church, those who are, are pilgrims and sojourners in this world, are called to abstain from fleshly lusts. They are called to embrace suffering. They are called to seek what pleases God. They are called to trust in what Christ has done for them. So, friend, with which priority does your life, does your daily routine most closely align? Which value system do you adhere to closest? If you take stock of your life, what is your position towards suffering? Do you reject it at all costs? Or because of what Christ has done for you in suffering, are you willing to follow in his example of suffering? Do you seek what pleases you? Or do you seek what pleases God? Do you trust in what you can do or have done? Or do you trust in what Christ alone has done for you? Peter says, those who are of, the, of this world follow their priorities. But, but brothers and sisters in Christ, we as the church are called to seek what pleases God and to trust in what Christ has done for us, to embrace suffering. So brothers and sisters, our priorities ought to align with those of pilgrims, exiles, and sojourners. Not only do we see dueling priorities, in verses 13 through 17, we see that we are dual citizens of two kingdoms. We saw there are dueling priorities in verses 11 and 12, and in verses 21 through 25. In verses 13 through 17, we see that we are dual citizens of two kingdoms. Here's what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. As we consider these verses, it's important for us to understand the context of Peter's audience. Who are these people that that Peter is writing to? Well, he is writing to churches who are full of people who are under Roman governance. They are under Roman authority. They are living under the authority of the Roman government. More than likely, they are under the Roman government at the time of the reign of Nero. Nero is, is not someone that you would identify as having a positive influence or being a fan of Christianity. 
he is about as opposite of that as you can get. If Christianity pops up, he wants it stomped out. He wants to eradicate it. He wants to kill all of the Christians. He is about undermining what Christianity is trying to do and spread throughout the Roman Empire. Peter writes to these believers and has the audacity to tell them in verse 7, seven or in verse 13 to submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether to the king as supreme and he knows who the king is he's not like in the caribbean somewhere on vacation just wistfully writing letters to whoever he wants about whatever he wants he he is aware of what is taking place he himself is under the governance of the roman empire he knows who the king is in these verses we see the first of three times that peter is going to employ the word submit He uses it here in verse 13, he uses it again in verse 18, and he uses it at the beginning of chapter 3 in verse 1. This word submit means to place yourself willingly under someone or something else. If we flip over and look in 1 Peter 5, 5, we see Peter use this word again in 1 Peter 5, verse 5. He uses it twice, actually. 1 Peter 5, 5. He says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. And then, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In 1 Peter 5, 5, there is a connection between submission and being clothed with humility. So here, in 1 Peter 2, Peter is commanding the exiles and pilgrims and sojourners that are in the church to submit to every ordinance of man. Every ordinance of man? What in the world is an ordinance of man? The, The idea here is every created institution that man holds. In Peter's culture, rulers were viewed as deities. They were viewed as, as non-human. And here Peter humanizes them. That they, that what they're holding, the office that Nero is holding is a human office. It was a created office. Why is that significant? Because there's only one God. And the Christians in the churches that Peter is writing to are not to submit to the emperor because he's God. They're supposed to submit to him, to every ordinance of man, for the Lord's sake. So Peter here helps the church see how they ought to view the governing authorities. Those who are in positions of authority in the government are created by God. And they are human just like us. That's an important thing for us to remember in our day. That that people who serve in the government are not unhuman. They're humans. That is significant because every human being is created in the image of God. 
They're image bearers. They have value and worth because of their creation by God. How oftentimes do we get into arguments or disagreements about someone in the government and the first thing that we do is we dehumanize them? Peter says here that we are to view them as humans. That we are to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man, every human institution, every created institution that man holds. So, are we to take this as a blank check for whoever is in government to to have whatever, all the authority that they need or want or, or desire? This is not what Peter has in mind. As a matter of fact, Peter himself in his own life shows us that this is not an absolute command. This is not a do this to the nth degree. Take your Bibles and turn back to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, we see that Peter himself doesn't follow the principle of total submission. And there is a very good reason why. In Acts chapter 4, look with me if you would, in Acts chapter 4, verse 18. In the context, Peter and the disciples are preaching, they're sharing the gospel, and the religious leaders of the Jewish faith are not huge fans of what Peter and the disciples are doing. And as the authority, as the local government, they call them in, in verse 18, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Do do Peter and John in that text submit to the authorities? No. Flip over to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we have another instance because uh, they, they... bump into each other again, the religious leaders and Peter. In in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, they have been called in, they've been put on trial, they have had false accusations lobbed against them, and they have been told, stop preaching or else. And listen to what Peter and the other apostles say in Acts 5, 29. They say, we ought to obey God rather than men. So there's a paradigm, there's a, there's a matrix that submitting to authorities fits in. There's a hierarchy that submitting to our governing authorities fits in. And, and newsflash in 1 Peter 2, it's not the top of the hierarchy. There is a higher tier of submission that submitting to every human ordinance falls under. In Acts 6 and 7, we see the example of Stephen. He's a a deacon who is appointed by the church. He serves. He's a man full of the Holy Spirit. He preaches. And again, the government gets upset at him. 
And they get really upset at him. And man, you want to talk about a sham trial? Stephen has the shammiest sham trial in the history of shammery. And he goes out and he gets stoned. And you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't raise a ruckus. He doesn't say, guys, this is not fair. You can't treat me like this. I want a lawyer. He is reverential and respectful to those men. But he tells them the truth. He shows us as an example of what it means to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now, the Lord's sake is important there because that establishes the top tier of submission. Submission to God is of utmost importance. We ought to obey God rather than man. Those were words that Peter uttered in Acts chapter 5. So, as we go back to 1 Peter 2, what is, what's the balance then that needs to be struck here? And this is the principle that I believe Peter is advocating here. Submission to governing authorities is to be done for the Lord's sake. It's a form of spiritual worship. Even though these verses talk about how Christians view earthly kingdoms, it is in light of God's supreme kingdom. It's because the Christians are citizens of God's kingdom that they're to submit to earthly kingdoms. Verse 15 of 1 Peter 2 directs us to see submitting to earthly kingdoms as something that is good. We read, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. It ought to be done. Submitting to our governing authorities ought to be done whenever normally possible because it is the will of God for those who are His kingdom citizens to do so. We submit to every human institution created by God, though, look in verse 16, as free. We are free men. We are free in the sense that we are free through what Christ has done for us in making us His people. So that freedom shouldn't be used, and we see this in verse 16, that we do not use our freedom as a cloak for vice. But this freedom is used in light of being God's bondservants. The idea of being God's bondservants is a common way for the apostles to view themselves. Pretty much every apostle who wrote an epistle in the New Testament at some point or another uses the idea of bondservant to identify themselves. Peter does it in 2 Peter 1.1. James does it in James 1.1. Titus, or Paul does it with Titus in Titus 1.1. And even Jude does it in Jude 1. They, they say, here's my name and I am a bondservant of God. Peter emphasizes in these verses that Christians live on the earth in the worldly kingdom, but do so not enslaved to the world's kingdom, but to God's kingdom. Peter's approach balances two extremes that we fight He balances being involved in the world 
with living in the reality of being a citizen of God's kingdom. So as those who have been redeemed with the blood of Christ, we are to live in line with what pleases God. And verse 17 summarizes these truths and the priority of what Peter just outlined. Honor all people. That includes the king. That includes the governors. That includes, well, all people. We're to honor them. We are to show respect to them. Love the brotherhood. That is, that's an exclusive term. The brotherhood is, are, are those group of believers who belong to the churches that Peter is writing to. We are to show love to everyone, but to especially those who are of the household of faith, Paul tells us. Fear God. Notice that Peter doesn't say, fear the king. Who is, who is at the top of the pyramid of submission? God is at the top of the pyramid. He is to be feared. Now we've seen that idea picked up in 1 Peter 1 because we are to conduct our stay here on this earth in fear. As Christians, the fear of God ought to be something that compels us and motivates us to live in such a way that pleases Him because we want to do that. We don't want to displease Him. Now, we live in a different day than Peter's audience lived in. They lived in a monarchy. We live in a democracy or a republic. We, we live in a, in a much different situation. We do not have a, a dictator or a king. We have the ability to express civil disobedience. They did not. So how does Peter's principles here apply to us? And that is the million dollar question. How do we take the truth of 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, and apply it to us as dual citizens of two kingdoms? On the one hand, we are citizens of the United States. But on the other hand, brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in Christ alone for salvation, you are a citizen of God's kingdom. Here are some some thoughts for us to think through. What is the tone with which you voice displeasure at those in authority? Is it one of respect? Is there a heart of submission in your life towards those who are in authority over us? Do we push back on what authorities tell us without complaining? Because Paul tells us that whatever we are supposed to do, we are to do so without complaining. So, as we exercise what is our constitutional obligation or or responsibility to, to express civil disobedience, are we doing so in a way that avoids complaining? Do we avoid personal insults and attacks? It's one thing to criticize someone's policies. It's another thing to attack that person as a person. And because these people have been placed by God in, in, in these ordinances of man... 
We are to honor the king. We are to honor all people. Are we quick to dehumanize the person in power that we don't like? I mean, there are a number of ways we can do that, right? We can do that on social media. We can do that through the way that we commentate or listening to other people commentate on what is taking place in our day. We can, we can do that through YouTube or other video means. And what we do in those instances is we give evildoers ammunition to use against us. Those who are practicing evil say, hey... You claim to be a Christian, and you're, you're practicing evil too. And notice that if we go back up to verses 11 and 12, to our, to our governing principles that Peter is giving us, verse 12 tells us that our conduct is to be honorable among the Gentiles. That when they speak against you as evildoers, that when they as doing evil look at you and say, hey, you're right here with us doing evil, they may... By your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's a challenge, not just for for you, that's a challenge for me. It's frustrating living in some of the times that we are living in. And Peter here admonishes us, he exhorts us. That our posture needs to be distinctively Christian in how we view ourselves and view those who are in authority over us. One other thought that this passage brings to mind. How do you view yourself? Do you view yourself as a follower of Christ who lives in America or as an American who follows Christ? Which, Which kingdom influences how you see the other? We're dual citizens. We are citizens of the United States of America. Praise God, hallelujah. And we are citizens, praise God, hallelujah, by His grace, we are citizens of God's kingdom. Which one influences how we view the other? Well, as sojourners and pilgrims, as exiles... I believe Peter wants his audience, he wants us to view our citizenship on this earth through the lens of our heavenly citizenship. So we see that we are dual citizens of two kingdoms. And we also see, thirdly, that we are dual servants of two masters. Look with me quickly at verses 18 through 20. The text says, servants, be submissive to your masters. There's there's the submission language again. Be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So again, it's important for us to understand the audience that Peter is writing to. These are servants. They are not slaves like we might imagine them. Most servants in in that day were treated fairly well by, by by their masters. They had the potential to earn wages. And there are others who are mistreated. There there are some that were treated as slaves. 
But many were able to purchase their freedom or, or they would find themselves in, in servanthood because of a debt that they had accrued or, or something that they had to be paid back. And upon completion of that, they could be freed. Their situation is much different from what America experienced in the 18th and 19th centuries with slavery. So there is a distinction there. At the same time, we have to be careful of just saying, oh, well, masters equals, or I'm sorry, servants equals employees and masters equals bosses because they're not employees. These servants, in most cases, did not volunteer to be bond servants. They did not have the freedom to leave one master and go to another on their own. They didn't have LinkedIn profiles and could go searching on Indeed for new jobs if they wanted them. This instruction from Peter, and this is very important, this instruction from Peter does not affirm the practice of slavery. Nor does it encourage the churches to have slaves. Notice in this text, there is no admonition to masters. It's also noteworthy that Peter here doesn't encourage a revolution to end slavery. Did you notice that? In this text, there's nothing about, hey, let's get a coalition together, let's rise up against the Roman Empire, let's get rid of this practice, it's wrong, it's sinful, we need to get rid of this. Why? Because Peter is not a cultural warrior. He is not first and foremost concerned with writing societal norms. His focus is how do Christians live in tough circumstances within the society in a way that pleases God. You are alive, we are alive in the 21st century. And and it is important for us to answer the question, how do we live in such a way, in, in this messed up society that we find ourselves in, how do we live in a way that pleases God? And that's the question for these first century believers. So in these verses, verses 18 through 20, we see Peter's continued teaching as it pertains to servants and their relationship with their masters. The command in verse 18 is to be submissive and respectful toward their masters. And it's given without qualification. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. It applies to to those who are good masters, those who make the top ten list of places that you you want to be a servant to, and those who are at the other end of the spectrum. We learn that this submission is commendable. In verse 19, we read, for this is commendable. And then Peter goes on to give us some scenarios and then closes out verse 20 by saying, this is commendable before God. What is behind this word commendable? And the fact, in fact, the word that we see in both verse 19 and verse 20, what does Peter mean here? Well, the word behind uh, commendable literally means grace. So if, if you are using a different translation like the ESV, you'll notice that verses 19 and 20 say that this is a gracious thing, or this is a gracious thing before God. And the idea of this text is that we will be graciously rewarded for our unjust suffering. That, that if we... Like Peter goes on to say here, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. 
that's commendable before God. That is something that God will graciously reward. Notice in, at the beginning of verse 20, though, what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? You royally mess up and you take it patiently. Well, what does that matter? You deserved the punishment. You deserved the suffering. You earned it. It's not what Peter has in mind here. If you suffer wrongfully. And then notice what, how he wraps up verse 20. But when you, and this is a very key phrase, when you do good and suffer. If you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Do you remember what the governing principle that we saw in verse 12 was? It was that our conduct was supposed to be honorable among the Gentiles so that when they observe your good works. Did you pick up on the good language that was under submitting to our government authorities? Look, in, look back in verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So, we are to suffer in such a way, the, uh, the encouragement here in verse 20 is to do good and suffer. If you, when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. One of the things that was fascinating for me to consider is the fact that Jesus uses this similar language. And I think Peter is pulling from his recollection of Jesus' teaching in Luke 6, 32-36. I would encourage you this afternoon to look that passage up and see how similar it is to what we see here in 1 Peter 2, 18-20. Luke 6, 32-36. In that text, Jesus says, If you do good to those who do good for you, what credit is it? It's the same word that's used here for commendable. If you do unjustly to those who are unjust to you, what credit is it? There's the idea of a reward. So, as we look at verses 18-20, through 20, what is the application from this text for us. We are not slaves. We don't own slaves here in America any longer. So the general principles that we see in this text in verses 18 through 20 are repeated elsewhere in 1 Peter. And that's really one of the keys to how we unpack what we get from verses 18 through 20. The principles that we see given to servants are three. The first is to submit to your earthly masters for the fear of God. Out of fear of God, or for the Lord's sake, be submissive to your masters. So, servants, submit to your earthly masters for the fear of God. That's the first principle Peter is giving to servants. Second principle, suffering for doing good will be rewarded by God. Third principle, servants are to do good and be willing to suffer for what is good. We see those drawn out other places in 1 Peter. Submitting to human institutions for the sake of God. We just saw that in verse 13. Suffering for doing good, that that will be rewarded. We see that in chapter 3, verse 14. Doing good and being willing to suffer for what's good. We see that Peter talk about that for everybody, all Christians, in 1 Peter 3, 17. So, though we are not servants of this world or, or servants to earthly masters, 
these principles that Peter gives to servants are still applicable to us. What about in our specific situation? In, in the principles of this section, they have application to, to some of the things that we encounter. Whether you have a great job with a wonderful boss or a horrible job with an atrocious boss, or some other mix of that, this section give us several things, gives us several things to think through. First, unless you are told to do something that goes against what God says, you ought to be submissive. Unless you're told to do something that goes against what God says. Again, because in verse 17 we are told to fear God. He is the one whose, whose rules and regulations must be followed at all costs. Second, Christians are to be marked by their honor and respect for all people. How can you and I practice this where we work? Well, maybe not necessarily, well, maybe even where I work. How do we practice showing Honor and respect. Doesn't necessarily mean that we that we accept or are tolerant of or just gloss over people's conduct. I'm talking about people for who they are. People at their core as created people. It's critical for us to see God as our boss above our actual boss. God is your boss. Your boss is your boss, but he's, he's not your actual boss. God is your boss. What God commands ought to be obeyed supremely. So at your work, are your priorities foremost to please your supervisor or to please God? At your place of work, are you concerned with getting ahead or conducting yourself in a way that pleases God. That's the paradigm here. That we are to abstain from fleshly lusts. And we are to have our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Those who are outside of Christ. So in this dual servants of two masters. Jesus speaks to this. He says that we cannot serve two masters. In this life, we struggle with wanting to please our earthly masters and supervisors. As someone who has worked at Panera Bread, who has uh, been a forklift driver, as someone who has taught in a school, those principles of submission are easy to read and easy to acknowledge, but they are very hard to practice. We want to be accepted in this world. But here, Peter encourages us that God wants us to live to please Him. And when we follow the example that we have in Christ, we fulfill what God has for us to do on this earth as pilgrims and exiles. We live as servants of this world, yes, but we are God's servants. So as we think through how to apply what we read in verses 11 through 25 to our life, 
keep in mind the overarching truth that we saw Peter emphasize earlier in chapter 2. We are to abstain from doing evil. We could, we could paraphrase verses 11 and 12 this way. Abstain from doing evil. Living your life in such a way that causes people to see the good that you do and glorify God. Primarily, that looks like having a respectful, submissive approach to institutions and structures in our society. Something else for us to consider as we, as we wind down. Nowhere in this passage does Peter advocate for social revolution. As a matter of fact, Peter argues for the people to do good and be upstanding citizens in their society. Peter's goal for his audience is the same that Paul delineates in 1 Timothy 2, 1-3. Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable, we could even add commendable, in the sight of God our Savior. So Peter's goal in our passage this morning is the long game. That is, let the church be the church and people will glorify God. They they will come to God as they see lives transformed by the gospel. So, question for us. Is, is our primary goal as Christians to pray for those in governance over us? Do we make that our habit? When, when there is something that irks us about something taking place in, in, the, in the halls of government, whether it's on the local level, state level, federal level, is our primary response to pray for those in governance over us? Is our goal to seek to live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence? Is that what we are striving to do with how we live under the government that is in place over us? One of the benefits of us gathering together as God's church is that we are able to love and encourage one another as we strive to live this out in our world. We're able to encourage one another. We're able to come together and, man, I am really struggling with this situation at work. My boss is is asking me to do things that are ethically unsound. and, And it stands to benefit me financially, but I know that God doesn't like it. Can you encourage me? Can you pray for me? Can you help me to have courage to stand up for what pleases God? Where else can you do that? That's one of the beauties of of the church, is that we are able to come together as living stones, as God's special people, and bear those burdens. The big picture for Peter in this letter is obedience, submission, and humility in our daily life. And those things help lead the people of God, help lead us as his followers to delight in submitting to God as our king. That's the big picture. God is our king. God is our ruler. And so we follow him. Our allegiance is primarily to him. As exiles and strangers and pilgrims, we seek to do good in this world. We live as citizens of this world, but that it is done in light of the citizenship that we have in heaven. So, 
May God give us grace to humble ourselves and be submissive servants to God, just like Jesus Christ our Savior. He is that pattern of submission. To this we were called. He is our example that we are to follow. May God give us grace to humble ourselves and be submissive servants to God, just like Jesus Christ our Savior.